Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, conspiracy deniers. Welcome to your safe place, 100% free of flurfing NASA disbelievers and non-moon landingists. Um, it's a haven for rational thought and understanding of all things science and technology. You've landed square on Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson, leading you through the darkness of misinformation into a lighter and brighter future. In today's show, we're going to explore the issue of connectivity in Australia, which is a bit of a bit topical in light of the big telco woes of last week. Um, we're checking out the viability of robotic guide dogs and we'll be investigating the option of using your electric car as an emergency battery. But without any further ado, here with LED torch in hand, leading us all ahead with great strides through the darkness, is our intrepid, trusted guide. It's Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? NMLs, the good old NMLs, the non-mooning landingists. Yeah, non-moon landingists. <laughs> when I wrote it down for the first time, I saw it. I can say that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to know how many is to put on the end of that. So I'm not familiar with a lot of non-moon landingists that call themselves that. <laughs> they call themselves truth finders, I think, is yeah. what, they, what they say. So, uh, yeah, it's good to be here, good to be chatting to you. And I do want to talk a little bit before we start this week, about the good old luggage trackers. I oh, love yeah. the idea of these. I might have told the story before that I gave my kids one Christmas a very exciting present. They had no idea what they were getting, and they got a bunch of little trackers that they could put in their teddy bears or in their suitcases for school or ports, backpacks for school, that type of thing. They weren't as excited as I was. I thought they were, they were great because I was just coming out at the time. I was like, how cool is this? <laughs> they got this little box with a disc in it. That's right. So and, and put it safely in some of your luggage and we can track where you are as well. So, so they weren't quite as excited, but I've just returned for some overseas travel and it's nice and comforting when you land at an airport and you pull your phone out and you have a look and you go, oh, good. My luggage is at least in the same airport as me. Not a guarantee that I'm going to get it on the conveyor belt that comes out, but at least I know it's within the vicinity. It's not yeah. several thousand kilometres away. And it worked quite well all the way, number of flights we went over a couple of weeks, until the last leg. <laughs> so oh. we, got, we got back on the very last leg, ready to collect our baggage, and I didn't even pull it out straight away and check, which I had the habit of doing as we travelled, because we were there with the last leg. That was the easiest, yep. the shortest leg. Everything was done by then. And the bags were coming through and we went, oh, I think that's been one lap so far. And then I pulled my phone out and, of course, I saw that it was several hundred kilometres away still <laughs> at the last airport there. But, again, it's a oh, comforting no, feeling. It's so frustrating. Well, it is, but it's a comforting feeling that you say, well, I'm not going to sit here and wait forever. I know it's not here. I know that 13 minutes ago it was 400 kilometres away, so I doubt it's going to be on mm. the conveyor belt in the next yep. couple of minutes so I can go home and lodge the claim and then wait for it. And then you also know when it turns up. So you can check it again and see when it turns up. So it's something that I know lots of people do use and I highly recommend it. I think it's a great idea. And we've talked, we've done stories before where they've been tracked to people's homes because some baggage handlers decide that maybe yeah. that bag would look better in their home than in the home <laughs> of the person that owns it. They're doing the person, uh, personal service by making sure that the bag was secure. That's right. And, and making sure any valuables are safe and secure in their home, in their home rather than yes. your home. So we've seen some examples like that and so they can be tracked in that particular scenario. I don't think that's the majority of situations. Sometimes they just get left behind at an airport mm. somewhere. So it's a nice, comforting feeling. Anyway, it's a it's a good little bit of use of some very clever technology used in a simplistic way. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't bring your bag back. 
<laughs> no, no. Unless you know where it is, <laughs> yeah. but you don't get it back, no. All right, we better dive into today's stories. In a world awash with talk about the latest tech, AI has chipped away at the competition over the past 11 months to become Collins Dictionary's Word of the Year. It's a sign of the time, so let's decode this trend, Matt. Well, I've got an issue. I've got an issue with an initialism being the word of the oh, year. Yeah. It's not an initialism of the year. Is that a word? Is it initialism? Uh, so it if, it's, if it's not an acronym, if oh. it doesn't spell out a word, so oh. Qantas, for example, while I was thinking of baggy trackers there, Qantas yeah, yeah. is an acronym because it gives you a word, but it, the letters make up other words. Yeah. But if it's not a word, if so AI say, yeah, okay. is initialism. So as an initialism, how can they call it, this is my complaint to Collins, how can they call it the word of the year when it's not actually a word. Well, you can just vote with your feet and just go to Macquarie or <laughs> that's Oxford that's and just right. <laughs> so use them as this. Or, sorry, don't want to... That's me being a pedant. <laughs> so I'll put that aside for the moment. So let's accept the fact that it is word of the year. Oh, it's still... I, I cringe a bit when I say that. <laughs> okay, let's, let's get over it. I'm, I'm past that. So the interesting part here is that it's not something that's just tech jargon. We've talked about mm. AI for a little while now, but it's become so ingrained in our everyday banter that obviously Collins Dictionary has said, well, you know what? That's good enough for us. That's going to be the word of the year. And yeah, right. it really, it's actually quite interesting. When you look back at previous words of the year, it gives you a bit of a snapshot on things that are happening, trends that are happening across society. So I quite like looking at those. Now, why do they choose AI? Well, the use of the term AI has quadrupled over the last 12 months. So okay. in our phones, on, in our music, in you know, just general conversation, I mean, the Beatles, which we will talk about a bit more in terms of bringing something back from the past, mm. when people say, oh, yeah, AI was used for that, people don't say, huh, what's that mean? Everyone just goes, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. So AI certainly mm. has been something that's basically, I suppose, come into every part of it. There was a global summit. The UK's Prime Minister hosted the global summit, talked about the benefits of AI, the pitfalls of AI. So essentially, you've got people just accepting AI as part of it. The runners-up for the word of the year, also, I don't mind looking at those because that gives you an idea of what was really the trends in the last year. So some of the runners-up were Bazball, so for those international, those international listeners that don't love their cricket as much as I do, <laughs> baseball is the term that they gave to the English cricket team, the style of cricket they were playing. Oh, okay. And the Brendan McCullum is the coach of the English cricket team yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, His right. nickname's Baz, and so the style, the more aggressive, innovative wild, loose and fancy style of test cricket they were playing was named baseball. So probably not as international as mm. maybe AI, but certainly that was one of the runners-up of the ter- of the um, of the year. For other ones, we had things like de-influencing. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. De-banking. De- so de-banking. gaining away from normal banking norms. Yeah. So, yeah, so greedflation. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nepo baby, which is all about nepotism, yeah. and semaglutide, and that's what <laughs> that's some various words. You can see why AI probably won. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's AI a, was the easiest one to pronounce. That's probably that's it. Uh, so quite interesting, but I I think that it really when you go back and look at some of those over the years, it's quite interesting to look at those and get that snapshot. But for the moment, AI was the one that Colin said was the word that captured the imagination of more people than anyone else. Yeah, wow.
Are you one who gets frustrated waiting at the lights? Sometimes there just seems to be no rhyme nor reason to why you have the red at 11.30pm without another car in sight and it seems like you've been waiting there for minutes and those minutes seem like hours and those hours seem like days. Anyway, sorry, this is getting a bit of a stretch on there about waiting at the red lights. Well, are you ready to drive into the future? Today we're switching gears to discuss how a new diversity of New South Wales, Boffin, is turning the tide on traffic with tech that could greenlight smoother rides. Buckle up, folks. Matt has the good oil for a smoother commute. Now, as most of our listeners would know, that typical systems rely on ground sensors mm. to detect when a car is there. I never know how far back those ground sensors are. <laughs> I'm always intrigued. I'm always I, wondered, wondering if one's broken. Well, that's right. I've been sitting here for two minutes now. <laughs> Is, do I reverse back and go forward again? There's no cars behind me. So I, I actually do watch when there's a new set of traffic lights being constructed to try and work out how far back. I've talked to people about mm. it, but I've gotten so many different answers about it being back one car length, two car mm. lengths, three car lengths. So I never quite know. But ground sensors, according to... Professor Vinayak Dixit from the University of New South Wales aren't the best way to really get a picture of what's happening with traffic. So he thinks that a better way to go is to look at the metadata on the our phones that are in our cars, uh, sorry, that are in our phones, in our pockets, but particularly mm. in our cars, to look at the pulse of traffic that's coming along. So rather than just there's a ground sensor, there's one car there, it's trying to actually grasp a whole picture around the area of cars. Yeah, so trying right. to use that. So it sounds incredibly complicated. So basically by getting that sort of information and looking at it on a slightly broader picture, so not just I'm a set of traffic lights, I've got a ground sensor, I'll know when there's a car there, end of story. It's looking at the broader picture because you sometimes might get a few reds in a row and mm. you get a green and finally you get to the next one and it's red. And so then even though you might get a green on your light, it's not really looking at the bigger picture. So mm. the whole idea here is to look at what can you do overall? What's the big picture here? So that data is available. We see that data in Google Maps, for example. You look at a, a route that you're going to go from A to B and there's some little red lines on some of that part. There you go. There's mm. congestion. That's real-time data. That's showing you right now there's congestion because they know, they don't know that James Eddy's there, but they know there's a phone there yeah. and it just happens to be in your pocket, but they don't know it's yours. They don't know your personal data, so they say. And so <laughs> you've got that ability to look at that. So far, they've been testing it in some places like India and Indonesia, which makes sense because there's a bit more traffic in those places than there is in Australia. And what they've done is they've managed to reduce delays by 37%. Mm. So that sounds quite good. So your minute sitting there waiting, getting frustrated, it might be reduced to a minute rather than minutes. The other part that's a nice win, which I'm not sure if this was the primary reason, but emissions have dropped by 8% as well because when those old-fashioned internal combustion engine vehicles are sitting there at the traffic lights, most of the time, some of them do have the automatic cutoff, but most of the time they're just sitting there burning away, producing yeah. emissions, not a lot, but a little bit, but that all adds up. If you can get 37% reduction in delays, obviously that reduces the emissions, in, in this case, 8%. So that's all good in terms of what they're working on. Again, how do you start to change these systems? It's not an easy thing to say, 
right, we've got this idea, we've tested it, now let's just click our fingers on all traffic lights. Now using that, a bit more complicated than that, especially when you want to get the different traffic lights talking to each other. Building the infrastructure there. Yeah, yeah that's getting a big that change. communication, because they haven't been built like that. They've been built mm. to have a ground sensor. Oh yes, I've got a certain number of cars there, I'll wait this long, I've got this many cars going over this one. There'd be an algorithm that'd be worked out in all mm. of that, but in this scenario, the algorithm's worked out on metadata. So keep an eye out for that. I don't think it'll be in our traffic well, lights tomorrow. I wonder tomorrow. if this new system would work if, you know, like, I can understand with heavy traffic, but what about when the traffic's really, really light? You know those nights where it's you're all alone and <laughs> it's just you? Yep. Surely your phone could communicate with that set of traffic lights and go, just let them through. <laughs> just go. Just quick. Go now. No one's looking. <laughs> I think they'd probably still leave the ground sensors in. So pr- yeah. presumably when you see that, you say, no traffic on the road, you pull up there at a red light and you wait there for a minute or two. That's when you feel like backing up and going over it a few times yes. to try and trick the sensor. <laughs> oh, no, there's 20 cars there now. So I imagine what they'd do is they'd still have the ground sensors in addition to the metadata mm. or maybe on those traffic lights you're talking about that aren't that busy really – they wouldn't worry about the metadata solution. It sounds like more a solution <laughs> for the heavily congested traffic rather than yeah, yeah, the quiet yeah. little country Makes line. Sense. Obtaining reliable communications in regional and remote areas is a bit of a bone of contention. The surety of a landline connection has been, well, in the past, a security needed where cell towers can't quite reach. But landlines in the regions now hanging up, sorry, are landlines in the regions now hanging on by a thread? Today we're cutting into the tangled debate over Australia's commitment to keeping the country connected. Matt is here to unplug the facts for us. Well, let's go back to 1876. Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone. That's right. Fantastic. Revolutionary. Watson, can you come in here or something like that, wasn't it? Something simple like that. Yes. Yes. Watson, I need you. So Australia was pretty quick to adopt the new technology, which is fantastic, and we started having telephones in households, and it was once a sign of wealth and privilege, and then suddenly they became as common as running water and electricity. Mm. By 2008, though, mobile phone services had overtaken the number of landlines in Australia. So Mm. that was a significant day. I remember in the press at the time, and I was speaking about it at the time, saying that today is significant – We've now got more mobile phone services and landline services. Now, again, if you go back to the beginning of the 1900s and when people were starting to get telephones, it was like, wow, look at these telephones. How could you ever have anything better than this? And only 100 years later, suddenly it's like, oh, landline, when's the last time? (laughs) When's the last time you used a landline in your home? You might use one at school or at work. Can I remember it? Yeah, so definitely there's been one at school, um, but um, yeah. No, it's been a long time. I can't remember. In the fact, last we time. used to have a landline, and when it rang, we just knew that it was going to be a telemarketer. <laughs> so you didn't answer it anyway. <laughs> Never answered it anyway. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> so we go to, let's say, 2008, mobile phone services overtook landlines. By 2021, only 14.5% of Aussies used a landline at home. Mm. And I'm surprised it's that many, but by 2023, it's probably even less than that. So. The really interesting thing is that we in this nation still have the universal service obligation. Now, this is a concept that the government had when Telstra was being privatised and they said, well, sure, you're going to try and look for profits. You're going to get rid of services that maybe aren't so needed. So we need you to make sure you keep delivering services to all those places that aren't maybe that profitable to keep services on. So the universal service obligation was all about that. The government 
pay that initially, but now it's a combination of the other providers and the government that pays Telstra almost $300 million a year. Yeah, wow. So a significant sum. Now, I can understand from Telstra's perspective, it's expensive to maintain that one telephone service that's at the end of the line for someone that doesn't have mobile phone reception and you've got to spend all that money on keeping the infrastructure upgraded and sending a technician out, all the rest of it. So I don't think the $300 million is an exorbitant amount, but what really irks the other carriers is they're paying a competitor Mm. for them to maintain the universal service obligation. So lots of the different carriers in particular, and the government, they're saying, do we really need the USO anymore? Or should we adapt the USO? And one of the carriers talked about the fact that they've paid that much money to Telstra over the last couple of decades that they could build another several hundred mobile phone towers (laughs) and extend that reach. Now, part of the problem is that in population density, Australia sits at number 197. We're 197th in population density in the world. Now, there's not that many countries around. I reckon we're struggling to name too many countries below that, so there's maybe only a couple hundred countries. Because Antarctica doesn't actually classify as a country, does it? Um, But um, there's not too many others out there where we're more spread out. So we're pretty low on that scale. So for us to have good coverage across all of that maybe is unrealistic because we don't have that many people here, So Mm. hence that low population density. So this is the problem. Now, when you've got... The NBN, which reaches 97% of Australians, when you've got mobile phone coverage, goes to 99.6% of Australians, you start to think, is there a better way to do the USO? We've got mobile satellite technology now in terms of Starlink, Elon Musk Starlink. You've got um, geostationary satellites, but they're not really designed for mobile communications. But you do have the ability to make mobile phone calls via satellite. It's not great, but Mm. are we better off spending $300 million a year on other things? Mobile phone towers, you're not going to cover everywhere, but a combination of satellite services and mobile phone towers, maybe you could do a lot more and look at the individual circumstances where maybe you might need to do something for some individuals with the USO rather than having this blanket USO. Because if you said to some people, well, you don't have mobile phone coverage at your place. We're maintaining your landline, but if you're happy to give up on your landline, why don't we put a mobile phone tower in? And they'd probably say, oh, happy days. I can actually (laughs) use the phone around my farm now rather than have to come back to the house to make a phone call. I don't know. And I guess the landline only serves one person in that case, but the mobile phone tower would serve anyone that comes by. That's right. And so I think that's part of the argument, in particular from other carriers. And I know they've got a vested interest in that they'd rather not be paying Telstra some money to Mm. to, basically keep going with the USO. So it's an interesting process. And not a lot of people really know about the fact that we've got this USO. They don't think, oh, yes, Telstra's paid money by Optus and Vodafone to maintain landlines in various locations that are remote. So it's an interesting one. I don't know what the end will be, but I hope they're looking at a more modern version of the USO. Mm. All right, we're approaching 2024 at a rate of knots. And so for many people... Image is everything. They need to express personality in whatever shade of colour on absolutely everything they own, on their person, on everything. So in today's Colour Wheel of Conversation, we're diving into the art and the science of automotive hues. 
where the shade of your ride is more than just a colour. It's a revolution on wheels, folks. Buckle up as Matt takes us on a tour of the latest in car colour technology. This really combines science, art and cars. I've been having a conversation about this just recently with a number of different people about the new shades of colour that are common and out. And do they think you're crazy? Do they go, what are you talking about, James? Yeah, just there's other things to worry about. (laughs) But there's a lot of the the sort of grey shades and or beige shades or um, dull, earthy green shades sort of floating around now. There are new shades, there's no doubt about it. So you are correct. You can tell your friends that are disbelievers in your concept that you are definitely right. Well, we had new conversations about when the burnt orange came out and yep. there was also a really vivid purple that came out. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. And they became super common. <laughs> so we're well, just turning the page and I wonder what's waiting around the corner for us. Well, this is what's waiting around the corner. Okay. This whole concept is a car that seems to emit its own light. Now, maybe I'm reading the marketing material here, but (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a Cura's latest concept EV, and it's got a blue that's almost got its own light in it. It's called, and it is a marketing name, the Double Apex Blue Pearl. It's got doubling there. It so is this one of those good. things where people are going to see one, one person is going to see one colour and another person is going to see another colour? I don't know if it's like that, but I think it's just meant to be a bit glossier, a bit shinier, hence the name right. Pearl in there. And it's got the word double in there, so it's got to be twice as good as oh. not having the word double in there, surely. Okay. So on the 2024 ZDX Type S, you'll see this colour available. Now, they've got a person, her name is Gypsy Medina. Maybe the name Gypsy is appropriate, but she is basically... Uh, her job is to come up with different artistic ways of creating colour. She's actually got a fine <laughs> arts degree rather than a science degree. And so this whole concept is about how can I create something different in a car? So this is about setting your car different, making it be different if you like, but it is meant to be something that actually glows in normal sunlight. Imagine that being your job. <laughs> I want you to go and find a new colour. Yeah. Now, the pressure that comes with that is enormous. Correct. Yep. Because you come up with this colour, that's just blue. <laughs> or that's just, that's just red. No, look at it from over here. It's definitely not blue. <laughs> so, And it's not just Acura that's doing this. You remember we talked about BMW that had a car that you could yes, change colours? Yes, change colour. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So they've got ideas here about changing electrical pulse and you've got different paints that are kind of talking about uh, some sort of historical component to it and uh, there was a there was one called fordite and it was something that was meant to be like a a gem like stone that was polished and yeah, anyway it didn't really work that well but Acura's got this blue that they say is better than any other blue out there. It shines and it drives mm. along the street and you'll go, wow, look at that blue. Mm. You'll be talking to your friends going, there's definitely a new blue out there. And they'll go, James, what have you been drinking this morning? It's too early in the day to start drinking. <laughs> As they're driving their beige or their... White. G- Grey. Actually, even white, when you see white now, you don't just say, I'll have a white car, thanks. No, because there are... <laughs> different shades of white. There are versions of white, shades of white. Or sometimes I think just different names of white. Yes. I'm not. I'm not convinced there. But keep an eye out for this blue, the double apex blue pearl. I did look at it online, but obviously I was never going to be able to capture the full effect of this blue just looking at a picture. Is this the emperor's new clothes? Is it? <laughs> You, when you see it, you go, you go oh, oh, I can definitely see it now. <laughs> uh, I hope not. I hope one. not. <laughs> let's, let's wait and see until we finally get to see this particular blue.
Now, we all know that looks can be deceiving, especially, though, when AI is the judge. Let's delve into the case that shook the world of facial recognition. The wrongful arrest of an innocent man. Will the real Matt Dickerson please stand up? Mm, this does sound scary, doesn't it? Actually, I did get confused with someone. Oh, you did? At, at it was American Airport. Is that Tom Cruise? Is it, <laughs> exactly. is it Hugh Jackman? Richard Gere, Tom Cruise, all of those. <laughs> it was, I'm just trying to remember, I think it was LA Airport. Went to LA Airport, just going through customs as normal. And then they said, could you come over to this room here, sir? And I went, oh, sure dear. thing. I'm wondering, you know, if they wanted my autograph can, or whatever it might be. Can you prove you're not this drug smuggler? Well, it, it was exactly that. They said, where oh, have wow. you been? And I, I went through where I'd been. And apparently there was a crim in Australia who had been smuggling some drugs. But luckily for me, he'd been through Hawaii where they'd been tracking him and, and then was on his way to the US or had been in the US. And so when I said that I'd come straight from Australia, I went through the process and finally they said, okay, you're right to go. And I did ask them. And after that, they said, oh, we're looking for this particular person. Well, that's not me, obviously. Well, you would say it's not you if it was you because obviously if you're a crim, <laughs> so that wasn't good enough for us, I'm sorry, sir. But yeah, it was actually quite interesting. That was done with good old-fashioned people back in the days of that. But this yeah. is a bit scary. This does sound like something out of a sci-fi novel. Mm. In 2020 it was that Detroit was using AI facial recognition. So you think it hasn't been around that long, but this is going back three years ago. And Robert Williams was a gentleman where he was arrested. So he basically, they knocked on his door, they he entered the door, they came to the door and they said, thanks very much, turn around, handcuff you, and off he went. And he's kind of saying, well, what have I done here? What's going on? He ended up yeah, in wow. jail that night, so he stayed overnight, which would be pretty scary, especially if you're For innocent sure. and you've done nothing wrong. Yeah. And so what was happening with this one was they were using AI, or they were using some data to train AI systems, but they were mainly using white people to do the training. And so what they found after the fact was that on anyone that had darker coloured skin, the AI wasn't quite as effective oh as distinguishing one person from another. Oh dear. So Robert Williams happened to be dark skinned and the person who had committed this crime they were looking for happened to be a similar colour of skin. And that was good enough for AI that let's go and do it. So you might talk about racial bias. It wasn't <laughs> even a case of racial wow. bias. It was just a bad training set that they were using. Now, the big issue here is that the police say that we use this as a tool to help us narrow down the suspects, which I don't have a problem with. The problem in this case, they grabbed the guy. Yeah, that's right. Him, They've made the arrest. <laughs> that's right. And then said, we'll check on it tomorrow morning. Yeah. Oh, what? You've got a plane ticket to show that you were 3,000 kilometres away when yeah. this crime happened. Oh, gee, we'd better let you go, I suppose. And it was. It, the, the proof that was there, the information that was available to the police showed categorically that this person was nowhere near where the crime mm. was committed. And, of course, sorry about that, have a go, uh, you know, walk out the door and everything's okay. But, again, this is where this whole debate around AI, if you just leave it to AI and say, you go out and do the work for us and we'll accept what you say blindly, yes. that's where you can get it. So I haven't had it go that far yet. I hope I don't have it go that far. But No this one is, gets it. <laughs> well, it's obviously happened and it's probably, yeah. probably going to happen again. So I suppose one of the things is here is... As a tool, fantastic. As the ultimate judge and jury, oh, we're keep very, all your ticket careful. stubs and your boarding passes. <laughs> and <That's yeah>. right. <laughs> it seems not even a hard day's night can keep the Beatles from making a comeback, thanks to a little help from their friends in AI. But now. 
You're probably well aware of uh, Now and Then, which is the Beatles' latest track released over the last fortnight. It's where yesterday meets technology, and it's on our discussion playlist today, Matt. You did well. I think that was three or four Beatles references in the one, in the <laughs> yeah, one paragraph. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> not bad, yeah, not yeah. bad. <laughs> Playing uh, Beatles bingo. <laughs> That's it. This has actually been quite interesting. I am, and I was, and I still am a Beatles fan, and I must admit, now and then didn't grab me as a classic Beatles no, song. No, because all the ones that did grab you, they went and published straight away. This one, I've, I think, oh yeah, I found this old tape here. That that's we, right. I think yeah. there was a reason that when they first played with it, they didn't go, quick, let's get that out there. It probably wasn't Well, I think it was best. just um, some uh, of John Lennon's uh, sort of tinkering away. And then um, yeah, Yoko said, made some comment about how she'd found a tape. And uh, and so they thought, oh, we can try and make something of this. Yeah. But that was, that was like 20 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago. It was around the early 90s well, when George Harrison was still around. That's right. So obviously 79 had to be before John Lennon died yeah. in 1980. So yeah. 79 was his first, as you say, tinkering with it. It was 1995 where George Harrison added a bit of a guitar to it and thought, oh, yeah, maybe. But the quality of John wasn't good Yeah, enough. they couldn't separate John's voice from the piano. And so they were just, yeah, yeah, they just needed to be able to uh, accentuate his voice over the piano a little bit. Correct. And the technology in 95 wasn't good enough. But now jump forward to 2023 and you've still got two of the Beatles alive. So we can use them live. Mm. And then we take what George Harrison did back in 95 and take what John Lennon did back in 79 and put it together. And now your opinion on the song ignore that for the moment, the quality of it is modern, digital yeah. quality, fantastic quality. So when I listened to it, I thought it still sounds exceptional in terms of the quality. You can still hear John's voice very clearly. I just The song didn't just grab me, but it still has hit number one in many places. In fact, the f- oh, no, I did listen to it online, and then the next time I heard it, it was on a, a playlist I used, which is just top 100 songs on, on one of my streaming apps. And so I was just listening to that, and about number three or four, oh, there's now and then. Yeah. So obviously I went, well, a lot of other people are listening to it as well, but it kept going and ended up being number one. But you do just wonder at the cleverness of the AI tools, but someone's got to tell AI what to do, to be able to extract that bit out yeah. from other things. Now, I know when I've done and audio... Up. And cleaned up. I know when I've done audio stuff in the past, and, and my son does some stuff with audio as well, and I've had some audio for whatever reason that might have had a bit of noise in the background, and I've actually said almost half-jokingly to my son, oh, if we just get rid of this background, surely the way we can just cancel out the background noise and everything will be right. And he kind of laughs at me, yeah, sure thing, Dad, as if you could do that. But that's exactly what they've done. That's They've taken John Lennon's voice and they've been able to cancel out the background and basically, as you said, accentuate his voice. And so, I'm pretty sure it was Peter Jackson of the Lord of the Rings fame that uh, was heavily involved with this. Yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of people were involved with it to get it there in the end, but you had some people there who were very clever and said, let's go and make this happen. So that's where I find it absolutely fascinating. Your opinion on the song, whatever, but the the process they went through to extract that, and I think, you know, in 50, 60 years' time, James, when they're doing recreations of tech talk and they're using your (laughs) voice and my voice and and using AI to create those voices, I mean, the same sort of thing, I reckon. (laughs) Same impact around the world, I would imagine, that people are hanging out for that new version of the podcast to come out with these recreated voices. They'll go through our blooper reel. That's right. And um, (laughs) (laughs) what they don't realise is that our blooper reel is what goes live. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
There'll be no surprises for That's anyone. Right. <laughs> Where's the hidden material? <laughs> no, no, sorry, all the material out You there. get everything. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's been quite fascinating, and I think the public reaction has been quite interesting as well. This next story is going to press some buttons for those autopilot sceptics out there in listener land. Steering clear of trouble, Tesla's autopilot system has emerged unscathed in a landmark US court decision. Let's navigate the twists and turns of this pivotal case, Matt. It was back in 2019 and there was an incident where a Tesla Model 3, reportedly on autopilot, I think reportedly by the family saying it was on autopilot, veered off the highway, collided with a tree, and hit it at 105 kilometres an hour. Mm. And I'm assuming the speed limit around there was about that, 110, 100, 100 kilometres an hour, and then caught fire. Unfortunately, the driver died. Two passengers had severe injuries. So one of the things that happened at the time, obviously there was a bit of debate around the whole thing around driverless cars, people letting autopilot take control, where were they at? So the family of the driver asked Tesla to pay up some money because they had a 40 system. They asked for $400 million, which what's the life of a person worth? You can't put a value on it, really. Mm. So they wanted to make sure it was a significant amount, a significant amount that would make Tesla sit up and take notice. And their argument was that the Tesla autopilot system was inherently faulty. Now, what Tesla have said, and you just don't know where the truth in all this lies, is that autopilot wasn't even engaged at the time of the crash, and Mr. Lee, the driver, had alcohol in his system. Now, if you had a perfect autopilot system, it wouldn't matter if you had alcohol in your system. No. I'm not advocating here that we should have drink driving, but if autopilot was doing everything, then you could sit back and have your arm folded and away you go. But I don't think Tesla say that. And I think that's a really important part of the case is that they don't say that you can sit there with your arms folded and never worry about touching the steering wheel. So you still shouldn't get in if you've had any alcohol or certainly over the limit. Mm. So there was obviously a whole range of debate in the court case. Over four days, the deliberations went and the jury only reached a 9-3 verdict in favour of Tesla. So they said that the Model 3 wasn't suffering from a manufacturing defect and essentially the, uh, I suppose, process there was that Tesla often say, you've still got to have your hands on the wheel, you've still got to be paying attention, mm. autopilot's there to assist. Mind you, in some of the advertising, they probably go a bit further than that. <laughs> the advertising maybe sounds a bit better. And that's probably part of the argument. I didn't actually go and watch the whole court case, but I'm sure that's part of it. So there have been some other cases where Tesla's been in front of the court for something similar. And I think part of it is that they talk about the names Tesla gives their autopilot. So they say, when you say autopilot, when you say FSD, full self-driving, then that kind of implies to people that you can do nothing. It can mm. be fully autonomous. But again, you and I both know that it gives you warnings. If you take your hands off the steering wheel for too long, it starts flashing up warnings. So the practicality of it is different to the advertising. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know where we'll come with all of this. I don't know whether finally Tesla will have to rename some of their things, whether they have to change how they actually label some of these. But it's one of those things, I think, that the court system sometimes drives the behaviour out in the real world. So we might see some things there, but I think... It's an interesting precedent, isn't it? It is. Uh, yeah. And when you drive in countries that ignore the lines on the road, so mm. 
Tesla's autopilot relies on seeing the lines on the side of the road. Now, I've been in some countries... It relies countries, on a regulated driving system. It does. <laughs> and and when I've been in countries where, let's say, for example, you've got two lanes going in one direction, two lanes in the other direction, and you've got a heavy centre line and then a dotted line between the two lanes. And on those roads, I've seen six cars across... There's well, yeah, five actually, or six, maybe seven lanes of traffic. That's right. And, and when I say six cars, I'm probably more thinking that I've seen a, a tuk-tuk and a couple of cars and a truck and a yep. cow. So, <laughs> so, so you've got yeah. a variety of things. And I've been in some of those countries and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how are you ever going to have autopilot work in this environment? I just, it is, it's a stretch too far. I don't think mm. it works that well with humans and mm. we're very clever. Mm. But how are you ever going to get autopilot to work in some of those systems? I, I don't know the answer. I'm sure we'll see some more legal battles. So far, Tesla's won every time they've been to court. But that doesn't mean they're going to win next time. And that doesn't mean they're going to have to change things quite dramatically. Okay, folks, it's time to unleash a tail-wagging debate. Can Queensland's headless guide dog robot, it's dubbed Spot, by the way, lead the way for vision-impaired Aussies, or is this just tech barking up the wrong tree? Folks, my sincere apologies. It's probably time that we introduced a pun jar, not a swear jar, but a pun jar. I'm going to bring a pocket full of dollar coins next week. Matt, what's a guide dog robot have that a Labrador doesn't? I'm glad you mentioned the puns there because you were on fire. <laughs> there was a, that was thick, and I was just <laughs> some of them were too easy, weren't they? <laughs> but this is interesting. So, Spot, we know Spot. We've talked about Spot before. Boston Robotics have got Spot, and so this particular engineering student who uses a guide dog himself is working on this research, and he knows some of the issues around guide dogs. For a start. It's expensive to get to the stage where a dog is a guide dog. Mm. Not every dog makes it to be a guide dog. After years of training, sorry, he didn't quite cut it. And so Mm. there's a a bit of an issue there. And so it's expensive and difficult, and not everyone that needs a guide dog can get a guide dog. If you could get to the stage where a robotic dog was good enough, then that sounds like it might be more accessible to more people. Sure, it might be expensive still, but at least you could... Manufacture them. You can't mm. manufacture guide dogs and it takes a long time. And if one to get works, to that you point. assume they all work. That's exactly right. And if you find a problem with one and you need to update the software, then you can apply that software update to all of them. It's a bit harder to do that with real guide dogs. So I actually like the idea. And often we do talk about the fact that necessity is the mother of invention. And you'll often see someone who's got a very vested interest who will go through and actually create something. In this mm. case, this particular student has got a guide dog and thinks, well, is there a way that we could get better with this? Is there some other way we could do it that's even better? He talks about the fact that training a guide dog is a two-year commitment. I actually thought it was longer than that, but a two-year commitment, that's a long period of time. It is, particularly if it doesn't come to fruition. Exactly right, when you get to there. And also, dogs are animals, so they could be hit by a car or they could get sick or Lots of things could happen to them. Mm. And you've got to feed them and look after them. And sure, the companionship might be nice, but I imagine if you could get a robotic guide dog, then theoretically you could get to the point where you would have a cheaper ongoing commitment for that particular guide dog. Some people have said that the guide dog won't ever be replaced by a robot because you need that intuition that Mm. a guide dog has. But you can... And but a guide dog's, dog's also an excellent companion in other ways as well. That's right. I can't imagine uh, someone sitting there patting their little robot. That's, that's exactly right. So when you consider those things, but the intuition, 
I actually think you could probably program that. Now, it sounds crazy to program intuition, but really what intuition is is looking at circumstances and making a decision based on that, even though it mightn't be the normal set of circumstances. But don't we regard AI as already starting to use a bit of intuition as well? Exactly right, because it's taking into account all this different information, all these inputs, and making decisions based on that. If you can get enough scenarios, enough training time with a robotic guide dog, so you can apply that training to it, then I think you could get there. Mm. So it's a really interesting topic. I don't know what the final answer is going to be, but I certainly know that it's going to be something that might open up a few eyes for people, excuse the pun there, open up a few eyes for people to look at different ways of helping out people that have got vision impairment. So stay tuned for this one. Mm. ever been in a blackout and thought about how your EV is just sitting there in your garage with a floor load of electricity waiting to be used, well why shouldn't it light up your life in an hour of darkness? Probably not. Okay, however, but by by directional charging could soon make that reality for EV owners true. A clever idea, Matt, and it makes perfect sense. Perhaps it'll sway some EV deniers even. It could do, actually. Bidirectional charging for EVs. The idea here, and there's some out there that already do it, that the EV doesn't just take energy, you can give it back too. And so when you've got those little blackouts, you might just have had something happen in the neighbourhood mm. and the power's gone down for a little bit of time, then literally you could have the idea that your car is giving power back. And so you've got the Nissan Leaf does it. Now, the problem with the Nissan Leaf doing it is the Nissan Leaf only comes with a fairly small battery in relative terms. So typically, depending on which model of Nissan Leaf, it might be half the size of the battery in a Tesla Model 3, for example. So you'd want a bit bigger battery. Another one that does it is the Ford F-150 Lightning. Now, that does have a decent-sized battery. It's got a 98-kilowatt-hour battery. And there was a senator from California who was actually watching something on TV and it came up with this whole concept about bidirectional charging. In California, they have some bushfires. She actually thought, well, this just makes so much sense. Why aren't we doing this? California's getting quite good with its penetration of EVs. So she actually took it to the Senate to say, let's make it compulsory by the year 2030 for every EV that's sold in the US to have the ability for bidirectional charging. And she hasn't quite been successful getting that up yet, but I love where she's going with it because if it's something that's just compulsory, manufacturers work out a way to do it cheaply rather than an expensive option that they might add on. So at the moment, the F-150, the Nissan Leaf, fantastic. Let's see how much further we can go with it. Obviously, you've got to have your house set up to do it as well. But for someone, if you did have regular blackouts, you would say, well, you know what? I reckon I'm going to it's go on add this. a bit of security, you it know, is. even if you don't have regular blackouts, yeah? Yeah. Now, I do use a number of UPSs, battery backup units, in my house for different things that I've got, different technology that I've got, because if I have a blackout, then my whole house stops working. So, <laughs> so not just lights, it's a whole bunch of other stuff stops working as well. So that's a bit of a problem for me. So I do have a variety of battery backup units in the house. I haven't got just one big one. I've got multiple small ones. But having something like a car that you could plug in to keep powering things. Now, what it would mean is you've got to be conscious of how charged your car is because there's mm. no good saying, I'll just keep driving my car for a couple of weeks until I get down to yeah. 20% and then charge up. That's the day Murphy's Law says that you'll have a blackout. <laughs> you're going to have a blackout. Yeah, but I think the idea is actually quite clever. 
you've also got the concept where you can power different items. And there's lots of cars that have got this already now where you've got a, a power point in there, you've got a, a general purpose outlet, a GPO in the car. And so I know in the F-150 Lightning in America, tradies are loving it because they can turn up to a job site and plug yeah, in just tools. Plug everything in. Now, a lot of them use cordless tools now, but batteries go flat so they can plug in those. And when you consider a 98-kilowatt-hour battery, if you've got a battery on your cordless drill that's a very small battery, a relatively small battery, well, you're not going to take too much power out of your battery for your car just by charging up your cordless drill exactly. or your mobile phone or whatever exactly. other electronic device. So it all makes sense. Powering your house is a little bit different, obviously a bit more power to power your house, and you'd still be conscious. I probably wouldn't turn on the jug and bore the jug while I had it plugged in You might have a car. go at the kids and uh, how many lights they've got turned on and what they're operating on during the blackout. That's right. And I'd, probably, I'd be focused on the big draw. So I'd probably be okay with lights, but I wouldn't say turn the oven no, on, yeah. turn the kettle on. <laughs> Save the ro- roast for another night. That's right. Yeah, we might just cook something a bit quicker tonight, a bit of toast maybe. But, I mean, the toast draws a bit, but it's only drawing it for a couple of minutes. So yeah. you'd be conscious of those sort of things. But I just love the concept. But I love the concept. They're trying to push it through. And a bit like Apple with USB-C in Europe, once they had to go to USB-C on their iPhones in Europe, they would have made the decision to say, we've got to do it everywhere. There's Mm -hmm. no point making a different iPhone for Europe and the rest of the world, so let's just do it everywhere. I think if this particular Senate or anyone gets it through in America, where you've got to have bi-directional charging, the car manufacturers are probably going to say, well, we've got to do it for there. Why not just do it everywhere and have it built in there, and then it'll be up to people with the individual homes to do it. So... All very interesting, and just one more step down that path towards That's progress, folks. That's right, to EV enlightenment. (laughs) And that is that for another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Thank you, linesman. Thank you, ball boys. It's time to pop pop Matt back on his charger until next time. Uh, But thank you for another cracking Tech Talk all the same, Matt. Uh, Always my pleasure. I don't need to go and worry about anything except my luggage. I've still got to get my luggage back at the moment, so I'll go and chase that up. (laughs) That's right. Oh, dear. Well, I'm wondering if AI can do some internet searches to find my doppelganger, or maybe doppelgangers, that's plural. I'm wondering how many shady versions of me are out there in the world and that might get me dragged through the interview rooms at the AFP or Interpol or whatever in the coming months. Oh, well, what are you going to do, eh? Well, thank you one and all for tuning in to another one of our humble podcast episodes. We hope that this one took you on another step into a uh, brighter future. You, my friend, are getting more and more savvy by the episode, and I can tell from all the way over here. I've been your host, James Eddy, and I look forward to when we can meet you next on your personal choice of device. That's on you. You pick the place, we'll pick the tech talk. Until then, take care and have a great week.